0: Welcome back into the Pressing On podcast. I'm your host, Richie Reeder, and today I've got my friends Pat and Brittany Smith with me. Pat and Brittany, welcome to the Pressing On podcast.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. Pat and Brittany have been married for 13 years and they have three children Mia, their oldest, who's 10, and their twins, Emma and Owen, who are both eight. They reside in New Wilmington, PA, where Brittany is an educator as a fifth-grade teacher, and Pat is the head swimming and diving coach at Westminster College. Their family has collectively shown resilience in the face of critical illness and facing the long journey of pediatric transplant for their daughter, Emma, over the years. They're personal friends and people that I respect greatly, so appreciate you guys taking some time to chat with us this afternoon. I'd love to begin with um, just getting to know you guys personally, you know, our listeners to the Pressing On podcast are some folks that are on the transplant journey that you guys have endured and continue to endure, Um, and then also people that might be facing a long-term hospitalization right now. Um, So let's give our listeners a feel for who Pat and Brittany Smith are, if you guys could tell us a little bit about how you grew up and how you met.
2: Well, we actually grew up about 10 minutes apart from each other, um, but we didn't meet until we were in college. So I grew up in a town called Bethel Park in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, and um, I was a swimmer, and Pat also, I'll let him tell you about his childhood, but he was also a swimmer. um, And it's funny, we have shirts from swim meets that we went to growing up where our names are both on the back. Um, So we had many times that our (laughs) paths actually crossed before we met. Um, when we went to college um, and both joined the Westminster College swim team. Um, so I grew up in Bethel Park. I spent a lot of my my childhood swimming um, and um, attending youth group at my church. Um, that was a big part of, of my family growing up. I have one sibling. I have a brother. Um, and I'll let you.
1: Who just had a baby, his first baby, another nephew for uh, right. Brittany and I just a few days ago, so Yeah.
0: Love it. How about you, Pat?
1: Yeah, I grew up in uh South Park, which is also in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. And um I just think all throughout my childhood I I pretty much played any sport there was, um baseball, basketball, soccer, um, and swimming and um ultimately ended up being the best at swimming and kind of what led me to want to swim in college and um that's where I met Brit and I would say, just kind of growing up. I don't know. I mean, anytime we could get outside and play, that was kind of what just shaped us. And um, I think we, um, I think we both remember. We we kind of remember seeing each other at uh, Kennywood amusement park during their physics day. During they had both-
2: a, a Westminster shirt on, and I knew I was going. Oh, I gotcha.
1: Right. During yes. our senior year, so that might be the first time it it actually ever clicked, but. Um, yeah. And then once we got to Westminster, obviously started dating and the rest is history, right?
0: Nice. So I'm curious, um, having played baseball in college myself, like being a college athlete, you know, those that have done it know that it's like a full-time job. So like the dedication, the hard work, the responsibility, balancing the athletics and the academics, like for both of you, like, how would you say that being a college athlete, um, kind of affected how you? approached adulthood and all of that hard work and discipline, what did it form inside of you? Well, Britt is probably a
1: much harder worker than I am. Uh, I might be (laughs) late uh, some of the times, but no, I think, you know, our college schedule was basically, you know, we swam on Monday and Friday morning, 6 to 7.30 a.m. We lifted Tuesday and Thursday morning, 6 to 7 a.m. And then we had practice every afternoon, you know, like 3 to 5.30 Um, and Mm so nine workouts a week plus weekends or, you know, meets on Saturday. I think, um, you know, we kind of just, it's like almost like embracing the grind. Um, right. And I think, um, you know, when you're in college, you don't maybe realize how awesome that is that you're, you know, that one of your jobs is, is sports, so to speak. But, um, you know, and how, once you become an adult, you know, that, um, you know, those tasks that you felt like were so tedious at the time was really just like working out and doing something mm-hmm. you love to do. Um, and so I am fortunate that I get to continue doing that. Um, like you mentioned, I coach swimming now at Westminster, where we both went. And um, like even this morning, my team, we practice six to 730. And, um, you know, we try to celebrate that embrace the grind mantra, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And I just try to share to them, um you know how much that will be beneficial for you um as you grow up um it's fun how about you bro yeah
2: you know i always said um i think i did better in you know swimming we swam more of the fall semester than the spring semester it does kind of cover both both semesters but i think i was always better planned and organized when i was swimming um versus when we had the off season because it it teaches you to make a schedule and time management and the discipline um you know, of, of really figuring out when you have a certain amount of time to do what to fit in practice and schoolwork, um, eating, sleeping, and fast-forwarding to life now um, as a teacher and a mom, and especially a mom with a child that has medical needs, um, it's really, I find myself using those time management and planning schedule um, skills that, you know, I developed throughout college a lot, daily.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for sharing that and kind of give us a peek behind the curtain of how you guys met and how that college experience kind of shaped your adult lives. Um, for our listeners, we're going to get into the Smiths' story of perseverance with their daughter, Emma's liver transplant here in a little bit. But just want to remind our listeners that our mission at Pressing On is to uplift, resource, and coach hospitalized families. And you can learn more about our programs at pressingon.com. Our goal and purpose for the podcast is to amplify voices of perseverance and highlight the journey of hospitalized families so that everyone who listens will be encouraged to press on through their lives holistically. And lastly, we want to show honor to the Children's Organ Transplant Association, who is our podcast sponsor here for season one. CODA helps children and young adults who need a life-saving transplant by providing fundraising assistance and family support. Founded in 18, excuse me, not 18, 1986, CODA has helped raise more than $125 million for transplant-related expenses and seen approximately 2,400 CODA patients transplanted successfully. They're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So funds raised to help meet transplant expenses are not considered income for families and 100% of each contribution made to Coda in honor of patients helps meet transplant-related expenses, and gifts to Coda are fully tax-deductible. So for more information on how Coda might financially assist your family on the transplant journey, head to coda.org. That's C-O-T-A dot org. I believe that coda was actually part of you guys' experience as well. We were connected
1: to them, I think, mostly through you uh, and Regan okay. uh, and with uh, Micah's. Uh, journey. Um, you know, I guess for the the listeners to this podcast, um, you know, Micah and Emma had the same maybe genetic disorder and uh, Micah was transplanted maybe 18 months. Is that right? Before, more than that before Emma. Um, and so yeah. they're uh, roughly the same age. Micah a little bit older, uh, your daughter, but um and so not that we copied everything you guys did through the process um but it was a really good guide um I think for us obviously having not gone through that before or really having any idea what it might look like but um Coda was a great um partner for us. Um uh, Emma was actually transplanted uh d- during uh, like COVID so um we uh had a, maybe a unique relationship with CODA through that time that we didn't, um, you know, get to do any fundraisers on our own um, because mm-hmm. it all,
0: process all all happened pretty quick um,
1: as we went through it. So,
0: Yeah, it was definitely a unique season to be in the hospital. I definitely want to hear your thoughts on that in a moment. But Brittany, I, I'm hoping that maybe you can give us a little um, background on, you know, your story with Emma and the liver transplant. Um, Maybe if you could take a few minutes to kind of walk our listeners through her onset, diagnosis, hospitalizations, and get into the transplant journey, just to give a little background. We'd love to learn from your perspective.
2: Yeah. So Emma and Owen um, are twins, and they were born at 34 weeks. Um, So it was kind of a surprise um, going into labor early, and there was a lot of um, a lot of adrenaline and buildup as, as we were transported from one hospital to another to um, account for six-week early twins. Um, and so they, they were born and they were healthy. Um, and we were sitting in their NICU room, kind of letting everything calm down um, and adjusting to life of having two newborns and two newborns that were in the NICU along with a two-year-old at home. And on day four, a nurse came running in and kept talking about needing blood work on baby A stat um, and that something was wrong. Something in her newborn screen had come, come back wrong. And the reality is the hospital we were at um, really had no, no or not, I'll say not, no knowledge, but not the correct knowledge um, that they needed to sure. even give us the information we needed on this diagnosis that they thought they might have found. Um, and it turns out by the end of the day, through talking to, a whole lot of different doctors and watching them run test after test on this tiny baby, um, that she was diagnosed with something called methylmalonic acidemia, MMA for short. Uh, and on her newborn screen, her methylmalonic acid level had been flagged as high. And so throughout testing, they realized that this was not a coincidence. It was not a mistake, um, that this was something that we needed to be treated. And so she was transferred to Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh by the end of that day. Um, And so we had Emma at Children's, Owen was still at McGee, and then we had a two-year-old at home. So it was a stressful time, and it was a trying time. Um, Fortunately, Owen was only in the NICU for 10 days, and so it it wasn't very long before he was back home. Um, And then we were just traveling back and forth between two places um, and trying to learn as much as we could and soak in everything we could from from all of the doctors, you know we're fortunate to live in a city that has a metabolic department in their children's hospital, um, and mm-hmm. has some of some of the top geneticists, you know, in the world who can provide us with the information that we needed and point us in all of the right direction. Um, and throughout all of this, you know, Emma's lab stabilized in the hospital. Fortunately, she was diagnosed from the newborn screen, and so we didn't have to experience. Too many scary moments in those first couple weeks there um, as they worked to get her on the right diet um, and, and get her stable enough to bring her home with us. And I can remember at the first appointment we went to outpatient, they mentioned liver transplant, um, just kind of throwing it out there casually. Uh, but at the time they said it wasn't something that they would consider until she was at least a year old. And so we kind of went through that first year of her life learning more and more about MMA and how to treat MMA. Um, Basically just a brief synopsis, you know, her body's missing the gene to break down protein. And so it requires um, a strict diet. We have to count all of the protein that goes in her body. We have to count the calories that she has. Um, We have to, at at that time as a newborn, she had to eat every three hours. Uh, We couldn't go much longer than that without providing her body with with substance. And so we um, spent the first year uh, making her formula, counting the protein, counting the calories, counting the hydration. Um, And then we reached year number one and we brought up the idea of liver transplant again. And, um, you know, kind of, I I guess we we took a long time to decide, you know, they, we kind of slowly went through the process of evaluation We were able to watch your story at that time um, and watch what a transplant would look like. Uh, And we, do you have anything you want to?
1: No, I just, I mean, I think when, um, you know, you look back and you talk about, you know, like our lives growing up and, and being dedicated and athletes, I can remember how much they just stressed to us how serious this was at the hospital. You know, I can remember multiple doctors saying, you know you have to feed her every 3 hours and they kept saying it over and over and over again and we looked at them and we're like what do you mean like we're not going to mess this up you know like sure. this is our child now and um and so i you know i've kind of learned throughout the journey that you know you you can take how serious the situation is by how serious is the doctors take it and i remember mm-hmm. in those early days how serious they um you know, they were whether it was with at McGee with the blood work um, or through some of the early days. But then I also remember when we met the first geneticist the first night, you know, she sat down and was like very calm and said, you know, this isn't a death sentence. Like, there, we're you know, this is manageable. Um, and I think, you know, kind of seeing her not be as freaked out about it as literally every other person we met that day was. I mean, at the first hospital, they came running in with printouts you know, where it's talking about, you know, mortality rate and life expectancy, you know, and she's, and, and, and so that's how serious, you know, I think we, that's where, where our minds went immediately. Um, so that night when we actually got to talk to somebody that knew what the disorder was, you know, it calmed our, I mean, not, it not that it went away, but um you know they just kept saying it's manageable like we can manage this we can manage like it's still going to be a lot of work but um
2: well I think it goes to um again how fortunate we are to have a resource at a hospital um, and have a department at the children's hospital in Pittsburgh that knows so much about this I can remember sitting down with the doctors at McGee and and asking you know Is this going to shorten her life? How long is she going to live? Because that's where my first thoughts go to when you hear the devastating diagnosis. And I can remember the doctor looking at me and saying, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. And, um, you know, it was a very stressful day and very stressful time. Um, But going through all of that, um, you know, and meeting with the doctors and, and seeing that we we're going to be able to manage it, manage it, and that there were treatments you know
0: was mm-hmm. was helpful well, and I think that you know for all of our listeners out there like we're a we're a society that is shaped by story, and one of the reasons that we want to continue to amplify these voices of perseverance, like the Smith family is because we we take comfort in knowing that someone has gone through something similar to us. And so maybe you're a family at the hospital that's listening to a podcast right now that maybe your child is on the journey of transplant before, during, or after. We hope that you can gain some wisdom and insight from Pat and Brittany Smith as they share their daughter's transplant experience. I'd love to move into that part of the journey for you guys of what was that like managing things at home early on and then why did you decide to opt for transplant? I guess that's the big question and then take us into that journey of transplant in the hospital, because it was like you mentioned earlier at a very unique time in our world in March of 2020.
1: I I can't speak a lot to it. Cause I quite frankly, like I think the, traum- the trauma part of it I've blocked a lot of it out. I can remember I would coach practice. I was still the assistant coach at the time. So I would coach practice. I would drive down the children's hospital which is about an hour from us and sit with Emma in those first days and it got to the point where one night i fell asleep on the couch and the nurses like they took care of me like they covered me up and they woke me up at like four o'clock in the morning and were like you just like you looked like you just really needed to sleep and then the next night i fell asleep putting our daughter mia to bed i fell asleep in her bed and it was the same thing um you know because and those are like really the, the the two of the only memories I have from that time because I I truly like blocked it off and so um
0: you so know, if Britt you're a is- transplant family listening to this later on and you're exhausted know that you are not alone
2: <laughs> um, even those first those first few months were rough but having twins alone um, two babies to care for and two babies who needed you along with a very active two year old running around at home sure. too um, just in any normal situation, it's, it's exhausting. And then you add on Emma's extra needs. Um, fortunately though, Emma did very well her first year of life. Uh, her labs looked good each time we went. Um, she, we, we did opt to get a G tube, a feeding tube and placed at about five months. And so that was mm-hmm. full on days when she wouldn't eat or we needed extra hydration. Um, but we we brought up the idea of transplant after her first year and the doctors kind of hesitated to even recommend us to move forward in the process, I think, because despite what they thought or what she could have looked like after the first year, um, she was handling things right. pretty well.
1: Uh, I, I mean, I think like you had mentioned about stories, your story to us uh, was very important. You know, it was after her diagnosis, we went online and, you know, we found there's a Facebook group for, for families of children with, with MMA. Um, mm-hmm. And you start the positive stories that, you know, there, there are older kids who, you know, are seemingly doing very well. Um, and they're advocating for their children and they're um, creating their own foundations or fundraisers. And so you kind of, you, you know, you're not alone um, anymore. And I can, I can remember the, um. You know the um the genetic counselor saying you know you're gonna talk about you know things like potty training and um, her doctor Dr. Vockley would always say she's not gonna walk down the aisle with a sippy cup or you know because she was only drinking from a specific kind of bottle or a pacifier you know said these things will work themselves and 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 they you know from you know the geneticist to the genetic counselor to nutrition they did a good job just normalizing the disorder that. Um, you know, we watch a lot of bluey now, you know, it's like run your own race kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, that, that really hits home, um, as you go through it, that, you know, they'll get there. It may not look like what other people look like, or it may not be what you you see other people post on Facebook or Instagram, but, um, Mm -hmm. they'll get there at that, their own pace and, and their own time. Um, and, and so, like I was starting to say, um you know, as I mentioned earlier, Micah, your daughter is a little bit older than ours, and you right. guys were extremely transparent online about her you know medical All the <laughs>
0: and
1: you guys had posted something about um I think you use the words like ticking time bomb right, and so we brought that up at our next appointment and said we know there's this other girl, and the doctors are very careful to not you know they're <laughs> oh. We're like we don't know who you're talking about, right? And it's like, well, there's only one other one other girl in Pittsburgh with this disorder, is her like, and um, and so we, you know, used that or used you guys a little bit as a as a guide to say, well, we know she's going through the evaluation process for transplant, um, and so they kind of, I think they pushed us off to the end of the summer.
2: Well, you know, we we. I brought it up. I can remember bringing it up at her at her appointment right around a year because that's when they told us that they would start considering it. Um, and I can remember him saying, "You know, I don't know that she needs that right now. She's managing all right on her own." Um, and then I can remember, you know, Micah had her transplant in January, and
0: right
2: and mm-hmm. an yeah. appointment soon after that. And I remember bringing it up again. Uh, And see, we were also a little bit in a unique situation that there were some trials coming out um, with gene therapy and some other different trials that would take the place of transplant. And I think our doctor really hesitated for a little bit at first because Emma was handling things pretty well. Um, And so we were kind of going back and forth. Do we continue to keep doing what we're doing? We have a routine. It's hard, but it works. We Mm -hmm. can, you know, we're managing it. And do we wait out and see see what happens with these therapies or do we continue with transplant? So Emma was, a, a, well, it was the summer before she turned two and we did the evaluation at the beginning of the summer and we for ourselves said, you know what, we're going to take this summer. It's my time off in the summer. We have vacations planned. We're going to go enjoy life as a family. And at the end of yeah. the summer, we're going to come back and talk about whether we want to list her or not. Um, and mm-hmm. so- that kind of turned into a whole nother year, year and a half. We
1: couldn't decide. I mean, and honestly, um, Dr. McKiernan, was at the, he was the head of the heptology department. He called us one afternoon in August and said something to the effect of, you know, if, if you're not ready or you don't like, you don't have to say yes right now, you know, like if like, we're okay with that on our end medically, like this, we're not going to push you into it. And I kind of feel like they, that if we weren't jumping down their, you know, throats to 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 list her, that, you know, obviously they do this every day. We did it once. <laughs> um,
2: it was a hard decision to make. Um, you know, we we knew what we were getting into. Uh we had certainly seen stories and watched stories. We knew what this was gonna entail. We knew what the end results were gonna be and and hopefully, you know. Mm-hmm how that was going to change. Um, but we also, you know, sometimes you get stuck in the hard that you know, and it's hard to change yeah. to a different, hard. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and I think ultimately, looking back, it really, you know, it, I think we did the right thing. We, we followed the path that, that we needed to, because when we did make our decision, there was a clear cut sign that this is what needed to happen. Um, Emma was, had just turned four and she was hospitalized for what we thought was a stomach bug. Um, you know, our kids had the, we had, we were fortunate to have family helping us both sets of parents live close by and were retired yeah. and could watch the kids so that our kids never went to daycare. Uh, and so at, f- at four years old, well, three turning four it was the first time we put her in a preschool setting. And the first time she was exposed mm-hmm. to germs, our older daughter had just started kindergarten. And so it was, there was some illness going around and we thought that she was admitted. It was right around Thanksgiving for a stomach bug and they came back and her MMA, MMA level at the time was higher than they had ever seen it in anybody else. And
0: wow.
2: we we're actually surprised that she was functioning the way she was functioning. Um, and through that, you know, Pat and I had been having the conversation for the last couple of months anyway, but we said, okay, it's time we need to
1: well, she had she had been admitted in October, right before Halloween, and that was a lingering, you know, she had been admitted a few times as a one, two, and three-year-old, but they were mm-hmm. 36-hour stays, 48-hour stays. She rebounded quickly, but it, right after she had turned four, it was like five days, and then she was back a month later, and it was five days, and then we were home for like one mm-hmm. day, and then she went back, and um, she just wasn't responding as quickly to the you know, the IVs and the medicines that they were giving at the time. And yeah. um, the
2: risks associated were, you know, that she was going to have a metabolic stroke, go into crisis and have a stroke. And then, you know, we wouldn't have the daughter that we need.
1: Which we is a n- neurological, you know, there's not, you not necessarily can rebound from that.
2: Well, we had a lot of family members who knew we were going through this the past couple of years and knew that this was something that we were discussing for Emma. And you have- yep. Not, not even um, necessarily close family members, but distant family members, you know, and they said, we know if you do this, you know, sometimes transplants are more successful if you can have uh, a relative donate, you know, with some of the blood matches and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So to kind of not put anybody on the spot, but to put it out there for any family member that was interested, we we gave a brief summary of what was happening on Facebook, never expecting the response that we got um, but putting it out there for for a few people that had mentioned they were interested to us um, and it was kind of overwhelming and humbling when you see how many people are willing mm-hmm. to even consider going through the testing to to do this for your daughter
1: yeah it was recommended yeah. that Brittany and i weren't suitable donors because we
2: carried the gene we
1: carry we we do yeah. not have technically full functioning i don't know the gene mm-hmm. i'm not Um, and so that might, I mean, that might be different a little bit now, um, as far as MMA goes, but I can also, I can remember this, um, very vividly when we were going back and forth to decide or not, I, I looked at her geneticist, you know, uh, Dr. Vockley to him. And I said, you know, like, not like, what would you do? Um, but he kind of posed that back to me and I said, I just, I trust you guys as a genetics team so much. And he said, I trust the transplant team here, you know, as much as any place in the world. Um, and that was comforting to kind of know that, you know, we were dealing with first class, like world-class surgeons, world-class geneticists, the whole team. I mean, the heptologists, the genetic counselors, the psychologists, the nurses, You know, being on the transplant floor now, there are nurses that come from all over the country that want to work on the transplant at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. And so just knowing, you know, that level of it's not even care. It's like desire and responsibility and want like they want to do that. Um, Not that it made it easier to list her or easier to. Mm -hmm. To go through with it. But there was just a different level, you know, it wasn't like there was another, there were, I don't know how many transplants they did that week, but you know, there's a lot of like, they, it's not like, oh, we do this once a month or once every couple months kind of thing. And and that was extremely comforting that,
0: that this is what they do. Something that our listeners might not necessarily be aware of is that, you know, the world is coming to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for pediatric abdominal transplant. And I remember Pat and Brittany have referenced my daughter Micah and her liver transplant journey several times. And so if you're listening to this and you want to get a feel for my wife's take on that, episode one of the Pressing On podcast is Regan Reader. And she goes through a lot of what Pat and Brittany are going through, um, explaining our daughter Micah's transplant. But our daughter Micah, as my wife likes to say, checked every one of those complications boxes after transplant. and so we're glad that we got her service here in Pittsburgh. We live east of the city, Pat and Brittany live north of the city. Um but you know when we consulted with the National Institute of Health, you know, they said, "Hey, we recommend you go to Pittsburgh." And we're like, "Wait, you don't even know where we live yet and you recommended we go to our home city." So, um I'd I'd like to hear from you guys about 2020, specifically that crazy, you know, time during COVID-19. Um how did everything that was going on in our world, either complicate or simplify, or maybe somewhere in between, you know, the life altering trauma that you guys were going through when Emma received her transplant in March of 2020?
2: You know, I I think that in a lot of ways, um, we have such a different take on COVID and quarantine and everything that everyone else went through. It certainly brought its own unique complications to the recovery process as far as allowing visitors and some of the different Um, the different uh, activities they offer within the hospital, you know, for the the children as they're recovering. We weren't able to Mm -hmm. do a lot of types of things, but we're grateful that there was such awareness brought to washing hands and watching for illness and not sending your kids to school when they're sick. You know, all of those were things that as a parent of a transplanted child, you want other people to be aware of and cognizant of. Um,
0: Absolutely.
2: You know, we're grateful for that. And our Emma, Emma was transplanted um, March seventeenth in twenty twenty, and so we say literally it was the day that the hospital shut down. You know, we we asked. I remember checking in that Monday before her transplant, and they, we asked if our parents had asked if they could come sit with us during transplant. And the nurse said on Friday I would have said yes, but as of today I have to say no. You know, it was a
1: like Tuesday. Yeah,
2: we watched well, all of the. All or of,
0: Monday.
2: We watched, you know. Every, all the hospital rules and regulations, people weren't wearing masks when we checked in. And halfway through the stay, you know, everyone started putting a mask on. And um, I think some of those things, you know, were unique to watch as we were there, but we saw some positives too. You know, we already had not planned on traveling at all that summer. We had planned sure. on staying isolated in our house. And with quarantine and COVID, That happened to a lot of other people as well. You know, so our kids didn't feel as left out because a lot of people weren't going over each other's houses and going on vacations and planning all of those types of things. There were a lot of different activities that were canceled. You know, we brought Emma home and we didn't have to worry about Mia bringing illnesses home from school because she wasn't going to school. I had -hmm. planned on taking a leave of absence from my school and my last day was everyone's last day as it turned (laughs) out. Um, and so, I, you know, even losing that that paycheck, I didn't have to take a leave from my school and and forfeit mm. my pay. I was able to continue working through that because we went remote. And so, while there wow. was a lot of hardship of COVID on a lot of other people, it actually in our situation ended up to be to um to provide, you know, some positives in that too.
1: Yeah, I, I can remember calling uh, one of the uh, transplant surgeons, Doctor. Soltis he gives everybody his cell phone number. I called him on the Friday before and he answered and he was like, "First of all, no one ever I give everyone my number but no one ever calls it. So if you have a doctor give you their cell phone, they they actually will answer it. Don't be afraid." And I said, "Are you sure you still want to do this?" Like, mm-hmm. I didn't nobody knew what COVID was and he just said, "I'd rather her get COVID with a transplant than without it." Yep. Um and not that that sealed it for us, but um you know, I think it was reassuring to be, to, to think, you know, we don't know what this illness is, but um, Mm -hmm. you know, this transplant essentially it gave Emma, you know, 80% function of the methylmalonic gene in her body. um, Because Mm -hmm. most of the body metabolizes a lot of that um, in in the liver um, or 80% of it. um, And so, you know, that was like the first thing to to kind of think about. Um, I can remember that they did her MMA level the night before transplant. And it was like nine hundred and fifty. Like it's supposed to be yeah. one for people that don't yeah. understand MMA. And before they had, you know, closed her up on the table. Twenty four hours later, it was like two hundred and twenty. You know, so the yeah. liver had been in her body, you know, Hours at that point, and it had cut it from nine hundred to two hundred um mm-hmm. and i and I think like like Britt said, the hospital started to clear itself out um you know there were days where there were four patients on the transplant floor, there were more nurses and doctors mm-hmm. um, when Emma did have a bleed, you know that was probably her most serious complication post um, post transplant you know one the doctor was sitting in the room kind of like just hanging out with us because there was nothing else to do. You know, he was getting to yeah. know us, and, you know, he noticed something, Um, you know, her heart rate started going up uh, and her, her stool was bloody. And he was like, wait a minute. And I, you know, I just like to think if if it was a busy day, you know, it might've taken wow. a, a little while for, for, for a doctor to come in or get a nurse's attention or, um, you know, and it was a, it was a pretty not traumatic couple minutes there but it it just seemed like it was you know resolved so quickly and I I just think because they were all very very accessible and so we got to know the nurses very well we got to know the doctors very well Mm -hmm. and like everybody was conscientious when when they got home yeah so even just sending Emma back to school in the fall six months later everybody wore masks
0: um, I, so I, I COVID really... was not all bad. It was definitely bringing some stability to families like yours. Huh?
2: We we certainly have a unique perspective on
0: it. Well, I, I appreciate you guys sharing that journey because I think it's helpful for other families to to hear, you know, the stories that might seem like there's minimal complications, the stories where there's a lot and everything in between but everybody's battle is significant because it's theirs it's their personal battle and it's a major life altering surgery so i can only imagine the emotions as parents that that went through you guys during that time and you know we say all the time that home doesn't equal healed you know it, it doesn't mean that everything's just hunky dory i'm sure that there's still responsibilities daily weekly monthly quarterly annually that you guys deal with maybe can you before we i have some support system questions that i want to ask you guys For our listeners, but can you give us an update on like, how have things gone over the last couple of years since she's been home, had the transplant? What's she up to today? Um, Fast forward a little bit and catch us up on her life.
2: So, um, you know, if you saw Emma, you would think she's a typical eight year old. She dances. Mm -hmm. She tried softball. (laughs)
1: She got hit with the ball ball a couple times and didn't really like that when when Uh, batting.
2: But, you know, she
1: (laughs) Same with soccer. She didn't really like the running back and forth part of that.
2: Um, But she she loves to play. She's got a great imagination. She's very dramatic. You know, I I can see um, acting in her future. Um, She loves the dance that she takes. She loves school. She loves to read. Um, and I, I think, you know, you look at her and a lot of people, a lot of our, our friends, even close friends, you know, don't necessarily see the the care that goes into keeping her like that day to day. And and while mm-hmm. it's not quite as um, stressful, maybe as pre-transplant, and there's certainly not as much of a risk as there was pre-transplant, there's still a lot of planning, a lot of coordinating, you know, she's allowed mm-hmm. to eat more freely now, but we're still tracking protein. We're still tracking calories we're still tracking hydration. Um, there are certain times that medicines she's taking might upset her stomach. And then you're, you're watching that because if she loses Mm too much one way or the other, you know, then that becomes a problem and illness, illness is still a big thing. And while she recovers well, um, last year she had five different illnesses that placed her in the hospital throughout the school year. They were brief stays, but they still, they take, they take a toll on, you know, our whole family or other two kids as well as Emma, you know, Mm so She is doing well health-wise, but it's still, it's a lot of work to keep her there. And I I think that's something that when you don't go through this situation, you don't always know that, Um, you know, just like when you're not walking in someone else's shoes, you don't know the battle they go to. But um, making, you know, keeping her this way, doing activities with her, even her doing activities is a lot of planning. Mm -hmm. It's planning around when we're going to do her tube feeds, when she's going to eat this. Um, And maybe not. the same as you plan for a child that doesn't need all of those specifications in their diet um, or with those Mm -hmm. medications you know we've we we still we travel we take trips in the summer all of that there's just a lot of a lot of planning that is involved with it
0: yeah yeah pat here's here's the one question for you because you and i have talked on the phone several times really respect how you advocate for your child you're a questions guy what tips or advice would you give for parents on how to advocate for their children during the long, you know, a hosp- long hospitalization or chronic illness?
1: Yeah, I, I think the most important thing is that, you know, you know your child better than anybody. Um, and so you should be able to tell if something, you know, you, if you feel like something is off, then, you know, you can say that. And at the same time, if you feel like things aren't as bad as the doctors are maybe making it seem, you can say that too. I'm at a hospitalization about two months ago um, Well, Brittany was actually out of town. And so, you know, I'm not usually the intake guy at the hospital. And, you know, the doctors came in that first morning with, you know, we need to run this, you know, she needs a central line. She needs this, she needs that. And they said, have you looked at her blood work? And they're like, well, I mean, it was the, you know, blood, I said, well, do you know what her baseline is? Like they you don't know what her baseline is. Like this is great. Like she's she's good. Like we could probably go home tomorrow like later today or tomorrow. And they were like, you know, and I wouldn't say I got testy with them, but you know, they're doing their job. Um, but I've been with Emma through all of her hospitals. I mean, she's been in the hospital two dozen times.
0: Right. And so
1: I know what her baseline is. I know what her trends should be. Um and it's okay to you know, I maybe don't always do it nicely. And I usually apologize for, for, you know, I don't ever swear at them, but you know, I'm, a, I don't, I mean, I'm I'm okay being stern. like that's coach. Like I'm going to, I'm a coach. Like I right. want results and I know what I want. And I, you know, I know not that I know how to get them, but, um, and so I think that that's okay to, you know, question everything. And, and, and I think we've learned throughout the years of things, you know, not that, not to, to, to trust the doctors. Like, again, I can remember one of our first, you know, illnesses. I, I, I brought something to her doctor and I'm trying to read this medical language. And he said, look, if, if you find something online and it looks like it's meant to be for a doctor, then don't read it because it's meant to be read by a doctor and doctors. We only highlight negative outcomes. Usually we don't, you know, write 30 papers about the 30 kids doing well. We write one paper about the one kid, that's not and um and so that's really helped me to get away from google um hmm. because obviously yeah. they you t- your kid has methylmonic acidemia what are you going to do you google it um and so you know that's something that's helped me kind of stay away um mm-hmm. from some of the you know rabbit holes you can go down um on the internet um but it's also just it's learning the doctors and learning your child and and you know, we've had a lot of I mean, I, I would say we learned all of this through usually mistake like when Emma had her G tube placed, you know, we didn't know that what a hospital intake looked like where, you know, really they say be here at six, but like we assume oh they'll have the IV ready, they'll have the um mm-hmm. the bag of fluid ready. But like they don't, and it's ten o'clock and it's like, well wait, she's supposed to have a bottle, but she's supposed to be NPO, but she's but, and so you know, it's it's just, learn, you know, trying to think of everything you can. And, you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question.
0: It sounds like the key things that I take away from there are like, don't just passively accept everything, be willing to question, not just for the sake of questioning, but to understand and make the wisest decision for your child. And and then also too, like to advocate in whatever means necessary. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. Brittany, my question for you, you mentioned your faith background and, you know, growing up in youth group and stuff like that. I know that your faith is important to you. How, how did your faith, you know, help shape your view on this long winding road of transplant?
2: Well, you know, I think throughout my whole life, I've always found it comforting to know that there's somebody else who, who knows the perfect plan um, and who knows where this is going to lead and has it laid out and is is watching out for my best interests. and um, becoming a mom i read a devotional one time you know it can be scary to lay that baby down at night and trust that everything's going to be okay and that they're they're going to wake up the next morning um and i read a devotional about just handing it over to god and even though you're sleeping and you're going to sleep you can't watch them 24 7 but god can and that he's there and i kind of thought about that as we handed emma over for the transplant Uh, I couldn't be back with her. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that God was, and uh, he had, he had a perfect plan for his life, for her, for her life. And that, you know, he doesn't promise it's going to be easy, but that, you know, he would be there to support us and just kind of having that to fall back on. um, I wrote a, a, not a, not necessarily a blog, but my, I, I updated a Facebook page nightly in the hospital through Emma's. Transplant, um and that was very th- therapeutic for me. And I could list prayer requests, and just knowing that it was going out and seeing other people commenting that they were praying for Emma as well, you know, it was comforting to me through some of the harder yeah. moments. And you know, as, as this day starts to get longer and longer, um, and so
0: no, that's great. Thanks for sharing your faith journey on that too. Because I think one of the things that's important to us at pressing on is that you know, we help families realize that we're holistic people we're not just spiritual, we're not just physical, but emotional, relational, intellectual. And so, you know, all of those parts of who we are is important. It's important that we care for our kids' needs in those areas, but also our needs as adults. Um, So I want to move to the rapid fire round. And then I got one last question about your support system and your family, if that's okay with you guys. Um, Just a, a few fun ways for people to get to know you as they listen to this podcast. So I'm going to mix it up a little bit and I'm going to go favorite movie of all time.
2: Oh, that's hard. I, I like romantic comedies. Anything light, funny, that's going to make me laugh. <laughs> um,
1: Does a specific prob- one come to mind? She has no favorites of anything. Oh, oh, okay. Alabama. <laughs> for her. Nice. Do you have a favorite movie, Pat? I don't know. I will watch just whatever's uh sports. I, I thought about this a little bit. I I feel like I like like
0: Wedding Crashers, something like that. Like I think (laughs) that's probably my favorite movie. So she brings the romance, you bring the comedy. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So what about? um, Let's go with another rapid fire round one here. Uh, Favorite late night snack that you can't live without? Uh,
2: cheesy chips. We both make them. Maybe because but chips and sprinkle
0: cheese on it, melt it in the oven or the microwave. And yeah.
1: Anyways. Nice. I'll eat really any kind of chip late at night. Pringles, Doritos. Love popcorn. It. Love it. Like popcorn. He makes, he
0: makes make good popcorn, popcorn a lot, I sometimes too. too. Yeah. Okay. You
1: nice. Can, that's probably a problem though. Probably got to cut back on that.
0: <laughs> well, Hey, when you spend so much time in the hospital, like our family, sometimes you just eat whatever you can get your hands on. Um, Another one favorite extracurricular activity that you guys enjoy as a family.
1: I think something that was fun this year for us was uh, we went to a, uh, a bunch of pirate games. Um, nice. You know, the, we still got
0: to do that together, man. Yeah the
1: uh, the um, you know Owen, our son, started playing baseball, and um, you know his his teams were very good, and he got really into it, which was awesome for for me. Um, the girls both played softball the last, so they understand it a little bit. Um, we Mm -hmm. have cousins, um, they have cousins, my brother and and our brother and sister-in-law live in, in Pittsburgh. So we, you know, we started meeting them at games and, and, you know, like, you know, my mother and father live in Pittsburgh or Britt's mom and dad live in Pitt. So we kind of made it like family outings almost.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, Thanks for uh, sharing a little bit of you guys' interests with us and everything like that. It's, it's always nice to not just hear somebody's story, but hear what you're into these days. So last question here for Britt before we wrap up. Like we know several members of your sweet extended family. What would you say to a family that's approaching a long-term hospitalization or a chronic illness, um, or trying to navigate the waters of transplant with how do you, Care for all of your children's needs, and how do you effectively kind of solicit help from extended family, and how do you tap into that support system? Maybe you can share your thoughts on that with families that are listening.
2: Yeah, you know, I like to have control, and I like to think <laughs> that well and that I'm gonna be there for everyone and get everything done, um, but it's just not possible. and so I mm-hmm. think you know as you start to go through this journey. It it is impactful, not just on the child that it's in, that it's, that's going to be there with you, but also on the rest of your family and how you're going to provide care for your other kids and make sure that they feel just as loved as as they are, because although they might not fully understand what their sibling is going through, um, they do see that mom and dad are both at the hospital with them and they're at home, Mm and so I I think, you know, as much as I wanted to do it all and I wanted to be there and I wanted to be back and forth, you do have to make sure you have a plan for something, um, a plan in place for support and even support for you, because there's going to be times that you falter and that you need to step away for a second and take a minute for yourself because you're not, you're not good to anyone else if you can't, um, if you're not at your best too. And mm-hmm. you know, we, are, we are fortunate that we have family nearby, both of our parents. Um, now again with Emma's transplant happening during COVID it didn't quite go the way that we had planned it out but we had a lot of a lot of backups in place um and my mom was able to be there for our other two kids for most of the time um navigating through online school with Mia and
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, you know being able to to find some fun isolated activities that they were still able to do um I was able to sneak down and visit them a few times she brought them you know, out in front of the hospital and I could sneak down to see them. But I think finding finding ways and finding um, supports for your, your other kids at home, as well as for you in the hospital, leaning on different resources that the hospital might provide. You know, we found the transplant psycho- psychologist was helpful for Pat and I to kind of talk through issues with Emma's anxiety. She was able to mm-hmm. come, even though Emma wouldn't really talk to her, you know, she could Come observe Emma and and offer suggestions to help through that as well. Um, And post transplant, we Mm -hmm. actually met with her family a couple times through through um, video conferencing. But it's definitely important to have a plan for support in place.
0: That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I know that that's something that you know every family wants to do well, um, but many times you're so focused on the individual that's laying in the hospital bed that. Many times we forget um, about our other children um, that we want to support well. So, um, guys, I just want to say thanks not only for being personal friends, but being a model of perseverance and being able to share with all of our listeners your um, journey of perseverance on the transplant um, trail. We're so glad that Emma is at home and doing well. Um, don't take for granted all that she's been through and definitely wish her well moving into the future and us transplant families got to stick together so thank you guys for joining the pressing on podcast
2: thank you for having us
0: yeah we're glad to uh, anything we can do to help absolutely well hey we're very glad to have pat and Brittany smith on the podcast here for episode four from pittsburgh pennsylvania you can look them up online on facebook And uh, if you'd like, um, you can go to pressingon.org to download this and forward to anyone that you know that might be on the transplant journey. And hopefully Pat and Brittany's story with their daughter, Emma, can be a resource for them. Just want to remind everyone that no matter where you're at in life, that you are seen, you are loved, you are valued, and you are not alone. So keep pressing on. And thanks for listening to the Pressing On Podcast.